Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, and thanks for tuning in for a new episode of Talking France. This week, we'll find out whether the pension strikes in France have finally run out of steam. After months of unrest and political wrangling, we'll examine whether there were any real winners and losers. Mont Saint-Michel, one of France's most spectacular landmarks, celebrated becoming a thousand years old this week. Huge efforts have been made in recent years to restore the site to its original maritime character, but we'll ask whether the tourist influx means Mont Saint-Michel is now best avoided. And the EU's 90-day rule is the subject of a lot of misinformation in certain parts of the press. So we'll clear a few things up and find out whether it really is possible for non-EU travellers to cheat the system and stay in France as long as they want. We'll also discuss why France doesn't do air conditioning and why some mayors are hiking the price of your water bills. And if all that's not enough for you, we'll have some great tips to enjoy a French summer. I'm Ben McPartland, your host, and I'll be joined this week by the talkative trio Emma Pearson, the local France's editor, journalist Jen Mansfield, and politics expert John Litchfield. Emma, Jen, are you okay? Doing good. Yeah, enjoying the summer. I feel like we're in the sweet spot now. It's warm enough for picnics and drinking rosé outside, but it's not so hot that going on the metro is like descending into the second circle of hell. Oh yeah, we're going to talk about summer shortly. It's been perhaps an emotional week, has it not for you two? Have we perhaps written our last strike disruptions article for pension strikes? For pension strikes, maybe. I think it's a safe bet that we've not written our last article about strikes in France. Not in France in general, yeah. What I'm talking about is, of course, Tuesday saw more French pension strikes. They didn't cause much disruption on the railways or in city public transport or indeed in schools, although there was some flight cancellations. Emma, what happened this week? And let's talk about, have we reached this endgame now for French pension strikes? Maybe. These things are always a bit hard to predict, but I think it's certainly fair to say that the strikes aren't having anything like the impact that they once did. Um, And that's important because one of the big things that unions look at when deciding whether to call the strike is turnout for previous strikes, both the number of workers who actually walk out and the number of demonstrators in the streets. And for Tuesday's strike, this was really low. Honestly, if you hadn't been reading the media, you might not have known there was a strike on unless you were trying to fly into certain airports where flights were cancelled. Likewise, the turnout at the demos on the streets, that was the lowest since the protests started. The Interior Ministry estimates were that 280,000 people across France, including including 31,000 in Paris. That's way down on the beginning when we were seeing like 1.2 million people take to the streets. And for unions, this is a problem because if they repeatedly call strikes that don't have much impact, it weakens their own position. Yeah, these unions, they've led the battle on the streets in a final attempt to derail the reform. But there's also been attempts in Parliament to prevent it coming into the law, have there not? What's the latest there? Yeah, I mean, the, the legal and political processes over pension reform is pretty much exhausted now. The bill is signed into law and it's due to come into effect in September. We had a sort of last gasp effort this week uh, when the small centrist group known as LIOT put forward a parliamentary motion to try and cancel the bill. But that's been defeated on a constitutional technicality. So it kind of seems like it's happening now. 
So it's hard for opponents to keep up the momentum when all these avenues are exhausted and the bill is already law. That doesn't mean that they're ready to to throw in the towel, though, or to jeter l'éponge, as we say in France, throw in the sponge. The hard left leader, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, was quoted this week as saying he will never stop battling pension reform. The Green MP, Sandrine Rousseau, she was a little bit more measured, but she said that defeat's not a foregone conclusion, that it's, you know, it's not over till it's over. But I think what we usually see at the end of big strike movements like this is just a gradual crumbling. The more moderate unions call it a day. The smaller, the more radical unions, they might fight on, but there's less and less impact to their actions. And I think that's probably what we're going to see here. Mm, We should remind listeners that these strikes and protests began way back on January the 19th in the middle of winter. It seems such a long time ago now. They continued through February, March, April and into May. During that time, we've seen millions take to the streets. We've also seen huge piles of rubbish build up on the streets of Paris, some of which were then turned into burning barricades. We've had sporadic violent clashes that have seen hundreds arrested and scores of police and protesters injured. We've even had what was meant to be the first state visit by King Charles, cancelled over fears of disruption. Can we say, Emma, that after this week, that's it now, summer will be peaceful? Yeah, I wouldn't be too sure about that, actually. Pension strikes might be over, but there are still sort of worries about inflation, cost of living in France. Summer is the traditional time for strikes in certain sectors like tourism and airlines as they you know, try and maximise their bargaining power during peak travel times. But I think it's also true that although the pension reform bill has passed and the moment is probably over, the overall mood in France remains quite angry, quite testy. It wouldn't surprise me if we saw more social conflict around different issues this summer. And it's not just this summer. Emma, hardline unionists from the CGT invaded the Paris Olympics HQ this week, chanting pas de retraite, pas de géo. Basically, that's threatening to disrupt next summer's Olympic Games if Macron doesn't pull his pension reform. Is that going to happen? Yeah, we've seen quite a few um, actions during the pension protests that targeted the Olympics. Uh, There was sporadic uh, occupations of the construction site up in Saint-Denis where they're building the new aquatic centre. There are some people who are strongly opposed to the Olympics themselves. They think they're wasteful, expensive, destructive of the planet. But there are others, I think, like the CGT, who are targeting the Olympics just as a way of putting pressure on the government or just embarrassing the government when they're obviously trying to present France in its best light to the world's. This is a perfect time to bring in John Litchfield, our politics expert, who joins us on the line from Normandy. I asked John to lay out the winners and the losers of this mammoth pensions battle in France. Well, it's it's a very strange situation in the sense that, um, you know, some of the winners are also losers and some of the losers can possibly also said to have been winners. I think there are some obvious losers as well. I mean, Macron clearly is a winner in the sense that he's got it through. You know, his tenacity deserves some credit and previous presidents have backed down in the face of the kind of protests or even lesser protests than he's had to face. But, you know, he's won that victory at great cost, a legacy of anger, real among many people, perhaps synthetic amongst others, which is going to make it very difficult, I think, um, not impossible for him to govern in the next four years, but very difficult for him to get stuff through. I think Elizabeth Bourne, the Prime Minister, is definitely a loser. I think he blames her for some of the trouble on Fairley. Uh, I think she will probably go maybe quite soon, people are now saying, but certainly in the autumn. I think the unions are an example of losers that are also winners in a way, because although they've lost the battle and the more moderate unions are accepting that, that this reform will happen, despite the fact that they rather bombastically said that they would stop it and so on. You know, the fact is that the unions stuck together over five or six months, which has not happened for a long, long time in France. And they're still sticking together up to a point. And they turned out far bigger numbers than people thought was possible. The strikes were perhaps not as effective as they claimed they would be, but pretty effective at times. So there's a new 
new union, very female-dominated leadership um, emerging in France now. And it'd be interesting to see whether they're able to build on that and, and make the unions a, a, a force again. And I think that no government in the future is going to be able to say, ah, the unions, you know, we don't need to worry about them anymore. Mm. They may have lost this, but they've proved themselves to be pretty strong. Uh, other than that, politically, people say that um, Le Pen emerges as a, as a great winner from doing nothing, which is kind of rather odd. Um, but I'm not, sure, I, I'm not sure really whether that lasts. I mean, she, she emerges as the winner just because people think of her sort of as the leader of the opposition, but she's not contributed anything sensible or coherent in the whole five or six months of the debate. And then I suppose the French people, are they winners or losers? You know, I mean, they I think they're losers, but in my belief, they're winners. That this needed to happen for the country to preserve its prosperity, prosperity and preserve its its uh, really quite generous welfare system, and especially the pension system. So, in the long term, this is a good thing, I think, for France. But you will yet still persuade many French people that's the case. John, just finally, this threat of the unions to disrupt next year's Paris Olympics. Do you think there's um, anything in that? Do you think they could really cause chaos next year? No, well, I mean you know, they might, you know there are still some hardliners banging saucepans and doing what they can around the country. But I think all of that's gone by. You know, I mean that was a month or so ago. Those sorts of threats, and you've not heard much of them recently. They may find another reason to try and cause trouble, but I, I really don't think that's going to happen. No, I mean they, they also said that they were going to disrupt. Was it the Monaco Grand Prix as well? And nothing happened there of any significance. No, I, I think there are still kind of asterisks like hardliners who are refusing to accept that the, the battle is won and lost. The country's mood has moved on rather suddenly maybe, but has moved on. There is no longer the sense of acute anger that there was a month or so or two or three months ago. And I think the hardliners, you know, because they're hardliners, have to pursue their hardline. But I don't think that that's going to carry over until next year, no. Now, a hugely significant birthday celebration took place in France this week. The famous island and abbey of Mont-Saint-Michel, located just off the coast of Normandy, or is it Brittany, in Western France, celebrated its 1,000th birthday. President Emmanuel Macron was there. Jen, tell us more. Well, so Mont-Saint-Michel is actually celebrating its third millennial anniversary, but I mean, who doesn't like the extra birthday celebration? So we'll let that go. This year, 2023, is recognized as 1,000 years since the Abbey was consecrated. But there are a couple of other important historical dates, like 708, when a bishop by the name of Aubert allegedly had three visions of the archangel Michael telling him to build a place of worship on the rocky tidal island that we now call Mont-Saint-Michel. And a few hundred years later, in 966, was when the Benedictine monks first settled at Mont-Saint-Michel. Right, okay, so 1,000 years of Mont-Saint-Michel in one way or another. This seems like a pretty important anniversary, though, seen as President Macron was on the site to market. Macron said, at a time when we fear seeing our landscapes disappear, Mont-Saint-Michel is proof that nothing is impossible. Why is Mont-Saint-Michel so important to France, Jen? So Mont-Saint-Michel is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it's one of France's most visited tourist and historical attractions. In fact, it is the most visited place in France outside of the Paris region. Every year, almost 3 million people go to see it, and it's really easy to understand the appeal. If you haven't seen a picture, you should absolutely look it up. It's a tidal island with a large abbey on the top, and it kind of looks like it's floating in the middle of the sea at some times, and at other times it's surrounded by sand. You can see little uh, sheep around in the marshes. It's really cool. It's, it's quite the sight to see. And France has put a lot of effort in so that it stays that way. There was a really long project that ran from 1995 until just a few years ago in 2015 to make it so that the island would not become landlocked. We'll hear shortly from John a bit more about that extraordinary work to restore the maritime character around Mont Saint-Michel. Jen, you mentioned it's the most visited tourist attraction in France outside Paris. In last August, 
A new record was set at Mont Saint-Michel when 36,000 people visited in just one day. Jenna, they're concerned this spectacular site has become a victim of its own success and over-tourism is now a real threat. So in the last few years, Mont Saint-Michel has definitely earned a bit of an unfortunate reputation for being overcrowded, especially during the peak tourism season, which is the summer. They have made some efforts to improve the visitor experience, though. So the shuttle bus, which runs on biofuel, takes you all the way up to the Abbey. And now the wait times are supposed to be more clearly displayed, especially during the summer months. They also have a team of staff that are meant to meet tourists when they arrive in the parking lot. And they've really tried to encourage more off-season visits with an advertising campaign and and better pricing for off-season parking. They also encourage people to visit just later in the day with free parking after 6.30 p.m. But no, there really aren't any plans right now to cap the number of tourists that can come per day. Although there are a lot of people that would like to see that in place. For now, there are plans to better regulate their shuttle service. So basically, like we were saying, people can more easily see the real-time number of how many visitors there, whether or not they've met thresholds of having it being overcrowded. And that way people can kind of judge on their own whether or not they still want to visit, whether they want to brave those crowds. It's a good time to bring in John Litchfield once again, who's been to Mont Saint-Michel many times and has followed the course of the extraordinary changes that have taken place there over the years. No, the Normans are very proud of it, partly because of this constant battle that goes on as to between the Normans and the Bretons as to whether it's Normandy or Brittany. In my view, quite clearly, it's Normandy. It's sort of about 100 metres from Brittany, you know, so how can it be Breton? Uh, and it was founded from the, the Norman side of the bay, so it's clearly a Norman institution. But, yeah, it's a very strange place, Mont Saint-Michel. It's only about an hour and a half drive from where I, I am here in, in Calvados, and it is in in Marche, in the next department uh, in Normandy, just. It's kind of a very spiritual place and extraordinarily absurdly commercialised place at the same time and it's very difficult sometimes to get your head around which side of it is either impressive or, or, or kind of depressing. I think what they've done uh, in the last 10 years is absolutely extraordinary and I think hasn't really been, you know, I wrote several stories about it in The Independent when I still work for them but, you know, it seems to me that the French media has not really given as much credit as it deserves for what's been done in terms of restoring the site to being a, its natural state. Essentially what they did was they built a dam on the river Quenon which separates Normandy and Brittany, comes out this the Mont Saint-Michel, and they used the, the water that they built up behind the dam in sort of like sort of giant flushing sessions to, to push away the sand from the island. So they did it without having to use buckets and spades or tractors or diggers or anything like that. It was all done by a kind of natural process to reverse the natural process of the silting up of the island, which meant that it was kind of not really an island anymore, except on very, very high tides. Now the tides come around and it makes it in a proper island again quite often, as a result of which the car parks, which used to sort of make the island very ugly because they used to gather on the sand buses and cars and things have been moved inland, which caused all kinds of political ructions about them being moved to near the shops of some people and not near the shops of others and so on. Now, whether the fact that the, the island is now an island again has produced this surge of tourists in, in the last couple of years, I'm not sure if the two things are connected or not. I mean, there was a day, I think last week or the week before, when the island had to be closed because it was too full of people and the little street that winds up the island with shops and restaurants was so jammed it was it was dangerous. And I think that's partly because of the post-COVID boom in tourism to France. In fact, the euro is quite weak and therefore you're getting a lot of tourists from America and Asia and so on all at once rather than the, what's happened in terms of the natural site because I'm not sure how many people are actually aware of that. You know, I mean, Le Mans, Saint-Michel has always been extremely popular. It's yeah. now more popular than ever. But I think that's more to do with other things to do in the tourist economy than it is with the site having been restored the way it has rather beautifully. So well worth a visit, but perhaps in low season, John. Yes, definitely don't go in midsummer. March, October is a good time to go, I would say. Perfect. Thank you, John. 
Guys, we need to talk about grass, uh, not the stuff in your garden or even indeed the stuff that you smoke or some people smoke. But the town of Grass, which is down in the French Riviera in the hills above the famous resort town of Cannes, it's known actually for its perfume industry. But it's in the news this week, Jen, because of an announcement by the mayor. Tell us more. Yes. So the mayor of Grasse, Jérôme Viau, who's a member of the Les Républicains party, made the news because he wants to raise rates for water in the summer. So basically his idea is that water will become more expensive when it's more scarce and then the rates will be lowered again in the winter. His idea is that this seasonal pricing system will encourage people to use less water in the summer and in turn this will help decrease the town's water consumption. It will likely bring up people's water bills slightly, more so for those who use a lot of water in the summertime, though. Okay, just give us a bit more about his motivation for doing this. Well, Grasse is located just north of Cannes, like you said, near the French Riviera in the Alpes-Maritimes department. But the gist is that a lot of the south of France, particularly around the Mediterranean, is currently on some level of drought alert or uh, water restriction. That is because we had a really, really dry winter. Uh, there was one point around February where France recorded 32 days without rainfall. And even though there was some rain this spring, it was sporadic and localized. So certain areas of the country like Brittany were able to refill their underground water tables. But lots of parts of the country are starting the summer with their aquifers much lower than they were last year. So the mayor's thinking is that changing water prices will create some sort of incentive system so that people will use less water, especially when it's starting to run low. Yeah, I mean, look, the reasons for doing so sound fairly sensible and understandable given the water situation in France. But Emma, what caught uh, me by surprise by this story was the fact that the mayor could do it. Can the mayor just do this and hike water prices? Um, yes, he can, if he consults with his local town council. And that's because water rates are actually set at a commune level in France. And they really vary quite a lot between neighbouring villages. Even if you have the same water supplier, you could be paying a very different amount than uh, the people in the next village. If you have a look at your water bill, you'll see that obviously quite a lot of it is just made up of subscription charges and fees. And that doesn't change regardless of how much water you use. And those fees, they cover the cost of, you know, maintaining the sewage system, paying the water company staff, that kind of thing. Then there's the price of the water consumed. And that depends, obviously, on how much you use and also the price per cubic metre. And it's this price is what the municipality decides. I had a quick look round. And so, for an example, the small village of Cocom, which is in Charente, southwest France, water there is 287 per cubic metre. Meanwhile, in Paris, it's 383. But in the Paris suburb of Bagnolet, where I live... It's next only, door to Paris. Yes, right next door to Paris. Yeah. Um, that's only 189. Wow. So it's like a really big difference mm. just on a commune level. I was kind of trying to figure out like how they decide this. Um, and almost every article I found just kept saying, tariffs are worked out according to a very complicated formula. So I was able to determine that factors are taken into account, things like population density, and also how much treatment the water needs. So like if your water is sourced from a river, that needs more treatment than if your water is meltwater coming down off the Alps, for example. But the final decision lies with the municipality. So yes, that's why the mayor of Grasse can introduce this varied tariff. And in fact, he isn't even the first person to do this. Several other communes in the southeast of France have also introduced either a, a varied tariff or extra charges, and again, to try and discourage people from using too much water alongside a kind of advice on how to reduce your water consumption. All right. And can mayors around France hike any other charges just, you know, along with their council? Can Anne Hidalgo in Paris hike the price of my baguette? Um, well, mayors do have quite a lot of power, but it's not unlimited. So local authorities can increase your property taxes if you own your own property. And in certain areas, like we talked about last week, they can introduce a surcharge onto second homes. Electricity and gas prices, they're regulated by the government, but it's at a national level, not a local level. So it's not, the mayor's not involved with that. 
When it comes to the price of your groceries, uh, like your baguette, the mayor, they don't have direct power, but there are organisations representing mayors and they do fairly regularly lobby the government on issues that are kind of concerning their electorate. And the government has recently forced supermarkets to introduce what they call an inflation-busting trimester, which is where for three months they sell certain basic items at or below cost price to help with the cost of living crisis. So maybe there's a, an indirect thing there. In terms of the cost of like your, your wine or your beer, for example, that's just decided by the seller with taxes added on by the government, obviously. If you're living in a small village, there might be an informal wine tax. Basically, if you see your local mayor in the bar, buy him or her a glass of wine, and then they'll probably help you sort out your next administrative difficulty. Okay, just a final question for you. You mentioned water bills there, right? Look, I've been in France 12 years. I've drunk a lot of water. I've brushed my teeth once a week. I've had a few showers. I've used the washing machine. I've never seen a water bill. Uh, no, me neither. Um, and that's What's not going because, on. Uh, that's not because we're just like cheats who try and dodge our bills. Um, it's actually pretty common if you rent or if you live uh, in a communal building like an apartment block, which a lot of people, a lot of people do. In that case, the bill goes to the building owner or the the sandik. And usually, like if you live in an apartment block, the water will just be added onto your building charges, mm, okay. uh, or it'll be paid by if you're renting it paid by the landlord. I mean, the landlord will probably add something onto the rent to cover that. So you are paying for it one way or the other, but you don't actually So I have been paying for my water all this time. Pretty much, I thought I was getting away with it. No. Okay, thanks, Emma, for that, for clearing all that up for us. Now, moving on. We've seen recently in the British press articles on how to find loopholes, so-called loopholes, in Europe's or the EU's 90-day rule. This rule, of course, doesn't just affect Brits. Non-EU citizens like Americans, Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders are also affected by this. But it's only since Brexit, really, that Brits have been restricted by the rule and even perhaps become aware of it. Is it really possible to cheat the 90-day rule, Emma? Yes or no? No. Ah. Okay, can we have a bit more detail, please? <laughs> if you insist, yeah. Um, but yeah, so basically the 90-day the rule says that non-EU citizens from certain countries can spend up to 90 days in every 180 in the EU or Schengen zone without needing to get a visa. It doesn't cover all non-EU countries. Some groups like Indians, for example, they need a visa to visit France even for a short holiday. But Americans, Canadians, Brits, Australians, New Zealanders, they all benefit from this 90-day rule. But there's really only three options if you want to spend time in France and you're not as an EU citizen. You either limit your visits to 90 days in every 180, you get a short-stay visitor visa, or you move to France, make France your full-time home and get a residence visa. And that's it. Honestly, all of these articles promising loopholes just offer a variation of those things. So, for example, the UK newspaper The Telegraph recently had a headline that was how to beat the 90-day rule and live in France for six months of the year. And then when you actually read it, the couple they spoke to just got a visa. So that's not beating the rule, that's mm. following the rule. Mm. Um, likewise, uh, there was a travel influencer. She told the UK tabloid The Sun that she'd found a loophole. And again, what her loophole was that she was leaving after 90 days and going to Bulgaria, which is not part of the Schengen zone. So she was still sticking to the 90 day limit there. It's not a loophole. And I don't want to sound unkind, but the European Commission currently has 32,000 full time staff, a significant number of whom are trained lawyers. So it's probably unlikely that a travel influencer will find a loophole that all of the EU lawyers have missed. OK, fair enough. Now, look, while 90 days in every 180 or maximum 90 days in every 180 sounds a decent deal, you know, for tourists, etc., it's not going to be a problem. We know it's not considered enough by many who perhaps own second homes in France who might, for example, want to spend four months over winter or the entire spring and summer in France. Can 
people in this kind of situation do anything? Yeah, I think the, the biggest group of people who struggle with it are definitely second homeowners, especially because of the limit being 90 days in every 180s. So in total, over the course of a year, you get six months, but you can't take it all together. So people who might like to spend the summer in France and the winter in the UK or vice versa, they do find it restrictive. So for them, probably the best option is to keep their residency in their home country and get a short stay visitor visa. This means that you don't have all the administrative hassles of actually moving to France, but you can have much longer visits. The other option is just move to France full time um, and then pay visits back to your home country to see family, friends, etc. This obviously gives you unlimited time in France, but there is quite a lot of admin in moving countries. It's a big step that you need to think about. Firstly, you need to get a visa. Then when you arrive, you need to register for residency, which might involve things like a medical check, language classes. You'll also need to register for local sort of health or social services. And it's really important to point out that if you live in France, you need to file an annual income tax declaration, even if you have no income in France. So, for example, if you're a pension coming from another country. Mm. Now, a lot of people kind of email us and, and ask us, is this likely to change, not just in France, but in our other countries, Spain and Italy, for example. I see that French Senator Corinne Ambert, I think I pronounced her right, of Les Républicains Party, she's submitting an amendment to the new immigration law to bring in a new visa for second homeowners who live outside the EU. She proposes a five-year visa that would allow visits of up to six months at a time. Is that a sign that things could change, Emma? Yeah, Honestly, I probably wouldn't get too excited about that. In the first place, the amendment that she's proposed is part of the immigration bill, which we talked about in a previous episode. And this bill seems to be stymied at the moment because of political infighting over different aspects of it. So we don't know whether it's even coming to Parliament at all now. In the second place, again, that's not really a 90-day loophole. You're still getting a visa. It's just a different type of visa. It might be a better one, but it's still a visa. But looking at the sort of wider question of whether France will ever introduce some kind of exemption to the 90-day rule for certain groups such as second homeowners, I asked Lord Peter Ricketts, he's the former UK ambassador to France and he's now a member of the House of Lords, what he thought about this. And he basically pointed out that the 90-day rule, it isn't a French rule, it's an EU one. So introducing some kind of special exception for certain groups in France is tricky. And really any fundamental change would have to be done at an EU level because Introducing a rule for British second homeowners in France, for example, also sets a precedent for, say, American second homeowners in Italy or Australian second homeowners in Spain. It all has a knock-on effect. OK, I'm going to read out a quote from Lord Ricketts, although I won't do it in the voice of Lord Ricketts, as you first suggested to me, Emma. <laughs> Uh, this is what Lord Ricketts had to say. I think the French are walking a bit of a tightrope because they are equally aware that in some areas, what they do will set a precedent for other EU countries and they are being careful not to make concessions to the UK effectively in areas that could then involve other EU countries having to do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, obviously it is theoretically possible to change EU rules, so this could be a change on a, an EU-wide level. But I think you've also got to look at how big a priority this is for France. We know that Emmanuel Macron has big ideas for the EU, such as expanding European strategic autonomy, strengthening defence capabilities, stuff like that. It, it seems to me more likely that France will use its influence within the EU on those big questions, not on longer stays for second homeowners. Mm. OK, just one final question. I see emails from readers of the local asking about handing back their carte de séjour, you know, their residency permits for second homeowners. What's this about? Why is it happening now? OK, so... This is a very specific group. It doesn't affect many people, but it seems that when Brits who were already living in France prior to Brexit were getting the special post-Brexit Cat de Séjour residency cards back in 2021, some second homeowners got them too. So what we're talking about here 
is British second homeowners who applied online in 2021 for the post-Brexit residency card known as the WARP, the Withdrawal Agreement Residency Permit. And that's the card for Brits who were living in France prior to December 31st, 2020. And this card, it's for residents of France, not for people who live elsewhere and have property here. But because the French government introduced this like special streamlined application process to try and make things easy for the people who were living here... It was possible for some people who had evidence of a French address, such as utility bills, which second homeowners would have, to get one of these cards. Now, we don't know how many second homeowners got these, but for the people who did, it's creating problems for them down the line. Basically, the issue is that this card is only for residents. So by applying for it, these people have told the French authorities that they're residents here. But as we saw earlier, residency in France comes with responsibilities, such as filing the annual tax declaration. And I think the reason you're seeing a a spike in emails and queries now is because it's tax season Mm -hmm. and people are realising that being in the system as residents is going to cause them tax problems. Mm -hmm. And I think it kind of, it goes back to what we were saying earlier, really, about the 90-day rule, that there are no loopholes. I think of all the messages we get from readers of the local listeners to the podcast who are having problems with French admin, the number one cause is people who think they found a loophole to one aspect of French rules, like residency or tax or inheritance laws, and then they find out that that loophole is creating problems for them in other aspects of French admin. So French admin always wins, really. It's like going to a casino and reckoning that you have a special system to beat the house. The house always Mm. wins. French admin always wins. Okay, brilliant. Thanks, Emma. I hope that clears some of the questions up about the 90-day rule for our listeners. Jen, this next question I think is best for you to answer. Question from a reader. Why don't French homes have aircon and how can I get it installed if I want it? So this is the million dollar question for a lot of Americans looking to visit France in the summer. It's quite a shock to come from the land of air conditioning to a country where it's pretty uncommon. Uh, As of 2020, less than a quarter of French households overall had air conditioning installed. And to be fair, it does depend on where you're going. So in the southeast of France, along the Mediterranean, that number goes up to about half of households. While in Brittany, where temperatures tend to stay more cool and mild, it's about one in 10. Okay, now it does exist. France does have air conditioning. You go into shops, you might find some, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, over Actually, over half of the stores and businesses in France have AC, though now they're legally required to keep their doors shut so that it doesn't escape out during the summer. But when it comes to private households for a long time, it made sense that French homes didn't have AC because heat waves and extreme temperatures were less common. But now climate change is making it so that heat waves are more frequent, more intense and more long lasting. So we're seeing kind of a a greater need for AC in France. But there are a couple other reasons why it is still less common here. You might hear your French friend repeat the old saying that air conditioning is going to shock your body and make you sick. That is not factual, but the more common and factual explanation for why French people tend to be opposed to it actually has to do with just the high cost and the negative impacts it can have on the environment. There was a 2021 study that uh, looked at French attitudes towards air conditioning. About two thirds of respondents uh, without AC said that they didn't have it just because of economic reasons. At a minimum, installing an air conditioner costs at least a few hundred euros. And then obviously that goes up if you're depending on the procedure that you're you're going for. Um, And then the other reason has to do with the environment. Almost half of the respondents in that survey said they felt guilty when using AC. In addition to using a lot of energy, AC also contributes to that urban uh, heat sink effect that can make cities up to 10 degrees Celsius hotter than any surrounding areas. So you might be cooling your apartment, but you're actually heating the city up for everyone else. Okay, look, the reality is uh, it's getting hotter due to the climate crisis. Overall, 2022 was the hottest year on record in France. How can someone go about installing AC in their French property if they want it? 
Well, this really depends on whether or not you want to install AC that's going to require permanent alterations to the exterior of your home. So if the answer is yes, then you're going to have to submit a planning permission with your local mairie. And then if you live in a shared apartment building, then there are some other things to think about. First of all, you'll probably have to speak with your syndicat. That's basically the homeowners association in the building as well. Now, if you just want to put a removable window device in, then the story is a little bit different. Basically, as long as you aren't making any structural changes, then you don't need a planning permission. But again, if you live in a shared apartment building, then you still might have to check with the syndic about the rules. They can be pretty strict about like what's visible outside of your window or your balcony. And then of course, if you are renting your apartment or you're renting your home, then you would need to ask permission from your landlord to make any permanent changes. Okay, so look, so it could be complicated. What about any like efficient alternatives to putting in AC? I think last summer, Emma was bragging about buying herself a 27-speed fan that when she had it at full speed, it basically cooled down the whole of Banyale. Jen, is there any kind of ecological alternatives to AC? Yeah, there are quite a few. One that's a new and interesting alternative option is the heat pump. While these are pretty costly to install, they are way more energy efficient and cost-effective in the long term than an AC unit. Basically, in the summer, they pump out the hot air, so it's not like it's generating heat or cold. Uh, It's basically just transferring warm to cool air. France has introduced a lot of government aid to help people put in heat pumps. And we've actually got a great article on the website, if that's something that you're interested in, to learn learn about how you can get that installed on your French property. But otherwise, there are plenty of other tips to stay cool in France. You can use shutters. A lot of French homes and apartments have those. And that helps you keep it shady. You can also set up a good air circulation. So basically, you would open your windows in the morning when it's cool or at night so that that cool air comes in before it gets hot outside. And then you can also try switching out old incandescent light bulbs for LED ones that generate less heat. And then one tip that I think is really helpful is to get rid of heat bridges. This uh, is heat a, bridge. Yeah, this is a term for an outside area that gets really hot and then transmits that heat into your property. So for example, like a concrete patio with glass doors or a balcony that's exposed to direct sunlight. I actually spent last weekend doing this with my partner. We have a south facing balcony. And so when the balcony heats up, it transfers a lot of warmth into the apartment. Okay, how did you deal with this uh, heat bridge? So basically we bought some fake grass. Uh, That's going to stay cooler than the concrete did at least. And so we put that all over the balcony and then we stuck up some plants around the railings. We stuck up a privacy screen. We also bought a half umbrella, which works a bit like an awning because we rent our apartment so we couldn't install a real awning. Um, But the half umbrella really seems to be doing the trick and it feels cooler in there. Emma, have you got, do you own half an umbrella? No, no, I don't. But I do have shutters. And honestly, I grew up in a country without shutters. And when I first moved to France, it kind of took me a while to get my head around how you use them in the summer, because it feels a bit counterintuitive on like hot, sunny days to like have all the shutters shut. But really, the shutters really do keep... Shutters are key in France, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You have them shut in the day and then you open them in the evening to bring the cool air in. It makes a big difference. Fantastic. And Jen, you mentioned that there's an article on our website with far more tips about air conditioning. And that goes for a lot of the subjects we've covered today, whether it's the pension strikes, whether it's the 90-day rule, whether it's water bills. You can find all these articles on our website. I will include them in the podcast notes and they'll also be in the podcast article. Thank you, Jen. Now, before we wrap up this episode, we promised you some tips for enjoying the summer in France. Emma, we've been talking about the heat. A lot of people will spend summer complaining about the heat. Have you got any tips for them? 
Yeah, go to the lake. When I first moved to the southwest, uh, in my first summer, people kept saying, oh, I'm going to the lake this summer. And I was like, that sounds really boring. I've seen water before. Why would you want to go to a lake? But that was before I realised that French, a lot of French inland lakes have beach areas. They have like beaches for sunbathing. You can swim in the lake. But also lots of them have like bars, cafes, activity for kids, crazy golf, often nighttime entertainment, like live music. It's really like a seaside, but inland. Uh, so I highly recommend spending time there. And then also watch the classic French horror movie, L'Inconnu du Lac, Stranger by the Lake, which is from 2013. And it's set at one of those lake beaches during the summer. It's a really good film. I have to say it's got a lot more sex and murder than any lake I ever went to, but mm. it's a really great film. So, ooh, so watch it anyway, just for that. Right. Interesting recommendation there. Sticking with the water theme, I would recommend having a picnic by the Seine River in Paris. I was down there the other night. It really is spectacular. It is, remember, an UNESCO World Heritage Site down there on the banks of the Seine. It's improved so much recently. There's no traffic. There's no cars left bank, right bank. You can sit there and watch all these boats go past, all these different battle moves. And there's so many different types. I didn't realise there's party boats. You know, there's dinner boats. There was one barge that I think the guy just rented out from for him and his wife. There was only one couple on the whole boat. But uh, it's spectacular. I even had some pea hummus, uh, which is probably the most poshest thing I've ever eaten. Uh, I don't want that getting out, by the way. Can you just keep that amongst you've, yourselves? You've changed. For me, changed. I, I thought it was mushy peas, which is why I had some. Uh, but I was tricked. I was told late it was pea hummus. But um, posh picnics is a thing to do in France in the summer, whether by the lake um, or along the banks of the Seine. It really is something that you'll see people doing all over the place. Jen, what about you? So my tip is for the Americans that are missing AC, a lot of French museums actually do have air conditioning. And another place to stay cool if you're really worried about being super outside is going to the old churches and old cathedrals. Those stay like a nice, comfortable temperature all summer long. So those are two places to go if you want to cool down and have a nice cultural experience. Just a final question. Are we going to face huge heat waves in France this summer? And, you know, am I going to have to buy a fan? What's the outlook? The uh, Meteor France, they, they say it's kind of still too early to give specific mm. predictions like that. So we don't actually know about heat waves. But yeah, as the climate crisis intensifies and the planet gets hotter, the general trend is that heat waves mm. uh, are more intense. They last longer. And also there are more days, I think they call them tropical nights, uh, mm, where it never falls below cool. 20. Um, and that's kind of the tipping point where you get like heat stress and, uh, and stuff like that. So we don't really know if there are going to be that many heat waves this summer, but certainly in the summers to come, yeah, heat waves are going to become more and more of a thing, which is why it's all important. We all have a look at our carbon footprint. Yes, and we'll keep an eye on the weather outlook in France towards the summer and report on any likely heat waves as we get news. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Emma. Thanks to John and thanks to Reese Edwards, who produces this podcast. We'll be back with more next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.